Right on, right on, right on. Live right. Live right. In the real world. Right on radio. Right on radio. Hey everyone, welcome to Right On Radio. My name is Jeff. If this is the first time you're tuning in, we talk God and politics. That's right. We are completely unafraid of any conversation. And I am so stoked about today's uh, show because this is stuff that legends are made out of and you're going to want to stay tuned and see exactly what I'm talking about. Of course, I have the infamous Chris Skye with us today and he is running for mayor of Toronto. And hey, if you're not from Toronto, you're thinking, well, this show isn't for me. This show is definitely for you because this could change the world. It literally can. And you're going to see how we're going to map it out for you in this conversation. Uh, One thing about the show, the tagline of the show is live right in the real world, where I show you the real world, both visible and invisible. And you decide how you want to live in it. And that's the way it should be. You get to decide. Things should not be decided for you from some tyrannical government. And uh, man, if this guy, Chris Guy, becomes a tyrant, it could be bad. But I don't think he is. And his track record certainly speaks against it. He is the founder of United Noncompliance and has been uh, probably the, the most outspoken and recognized person in Canada uh, going against the tyrannical measures of the regime that's currently uh, apparently in power. Hey, before I bring it on, just speaking of going against tyranny and stuff like that, you know, there's some corporate secrets that people do not really even think about. You know, when the big bad Walmarts of the world or these superstores, which we're seeing all these corporations getting together and merging and stuff like that, When these companies come to your town, you know, it's widely known that, you know, with Walmart, for instance, 50 to 100 little businesses will go out of business. Then they offer them a minimum wage job. They buy all their stuff from China or a good portion of it. You're not helping the local economy at all, but it gets worse because they have such a big tent that they put in. They they go after the manufacturers and they squeeze them. Hey, if you want the Walmart contract, you got to get your price down to this. You have to ramp up your production. So these companies go into major debt and then they're a slave to the system. And I'm not just picking on Walmart. It's many, many of these big stores and stuff like that. So as you know, if you've been listening to this, we are fighting back. We're taking a stand. We're taking a stand for liberty. Because listen, if you have one of those jobs in one of those companies that does that manufacturing, are you getting a raise? No. And then they put half these places out of business. It's complete. We're paying these people to control our lives. Stop it. Stop it now. Go to mylibertystand.com. That's mylibertystand.com. Dot com And if that doesn't work for you, some people have had problems, you can send me an email at writeonjeff at gmail.com. And without further ado, do not underestimate the man I'm bringing on, and it is Chris Guy for Mayor of Toronto. And just a bit of background, if you're not familiar with Toronto, Toronto has about 2.7 million people. 
it's really equivalent to New York in many ways where we have New York City, we have everything that New York has, but it's safer and cleaner, of course. Uh, but the greater Toronto area is about nine million people. It is the jewel of Canada in many ways. And Chris Guy, you want to take on management of this entire geography. A hundred percent. I never even considered it uh, until the idea kind of fell in my lap. I've obviously been speaking out against the COVID restrictions and the government overreach for, for at least the last three years, privately a lot longer than that. But when they went into the COVID uh, COVID restrictions, I became uh, internationally active. Uh, just in the last couple months, we've been uh, in such countries as England, Ireland, France, Netherlands, Germany, Belgium, Mexico, and we were asked to speak virtually everywhere uh, to thousands and thousands of people all over the world because this isn't just a Canadian problem. This is a global problem. They're bring, just like COVID was a global problem and the WHO was dictating to all the different countries how to basically uh, impose tyranny on the citizens. Now we're in the same the exact same boat with the World Economic Forum and they're using climate change as their new vehicle. So I just want to bring everybody up to speed on why I, th why I think this is so important. Uh, for the last couple of years, we basically have been trained psych in psychological warfare. And the two things that they really wanted to train us to believe was that the rights and freedoms that have always been paramount to a successful society to the point where we fought world wars over them and millions of people died are no longer paramount to a successful society. In fact, they're actually selfish and dangerous. <laughs> so they told us we needed to give them up but only temporarily and only under the guise of saving others because you don't want to be a grandma or a baby killer. The other big thing is individual responsibility. Individual responsibility is another bedrock of society, but they wanted to change that and make us feel like we are now collectively responsible. Right. You need to wear your mask to protect the person beside you. And they browbeat you over the head with that and pass laws and stigmatize you and called you things like anti-vaxxer or anti-masker if you wouldn't go along with it. They tried to fire you from your job, ostracize you from society to make you go along with it. But a pandemic could only last so long. So these restrictions and all these so-called things that they're training us to do inevitably would go away. And thankfully to the trucker convoy, which in my opinion is the single uh, most perfect example of united non-compliance that we saw anywhere in the world. And I believe is the reason why Canada is now unmasked and for the most part unmandated. Well, without that, we would have still been in the tyranny. And now they want to put us in a position where they can impose the same style tyranny, but under the guise of fighting climate change, saving the environment because a climate crisis can last for generations. So what am I talking about? I'm talking about their imposition of 15-minute cities to start. And what is a 15-minute city? The idea was started in Paris and England. And the whole purpose of a 15-minute city, and everybody needs to understand this, is to reduce your individual carbon footprint, which is a euphemism for reducing your actual footprint, not just in mobility of travel, but even in freedom of choice for what you want to eat, what you, where you want to go, etc., so well, how is this a bad well, thing? Let me just jump in there. There's a couple of points I just want to make uh, to help solidify this information. If you're hearing some of this for the first time, when he was talking about we were being trained, do yourself a favor, write down these two words and go look them up. Mass formation. 
And now that all the mandates have been lifted for the most part, they are still working on mass formation, which literally is programming you. And when they talk about, you know, first of all, we have carbon taxes. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you are carbon. <laughs> you breathe carbon. They're taxing you. And this gets really scary. And when, and Chris, you're going to describe the 15-minute city, but they actually are already implementing this in Europe, and they're making it like a good thing because just as Chris said, we're in it together. Remember, we're alone together. How stupid. Do, but, but it worked, and it can never work again. Please continue on 15-minute cities, Chris. Perfect. Thank you for that segue because it helps people that don't understand what I'm talking about get a background. So they're touting the 15-minute city as the new way forward. They're going to say it's easier, more convenient, sustainable, inclusive, equitable, all the wonderful buzzwords that they like to use. But what is a 15-minute city? The idea is everything you need, according to the government, will be 15 minutes away from where you live. 15 minutes by foot or bike. So I don't know if you guys walk a lot. But the average person can walk about 1.5 kilometers in one direction in 15 minutes. And once they're biking at an average of 20 kilometers an hour and they have to stop for roadways and other things, it's about the same distance. So in reality, they want you to be living in what they're calling a city that's roughly five square kilometers. And if you remember the lockdowns, when we were under lockdown, what did they tell you? You're not allowed to go more than five kilometers from your house. So that mass formation, that programming was already being done to create what they're trying to call their new normal. So and this time it'll have checkpoints. It's even, they already do. So what does the 15-minute city actually look like and actually entail, and how are they going to accomplish this? Well, they already did it in Oxford, England, and I was there. I was there in September as they were imposing this, and I spoke to members of that community and they actually had a town hall meeting and they asked for the public input. And 94% of the residents of Oxford voted against the idea, but the city decided to go forward with it anyway. So what exactly did they do to create this so-called 15-minute city out of Oxford? First, they divided it into six districts. Districts straight out of the Hunger Games. How did they make these districts? Well, they divided the districts with barricades, bollards, and even installed traffic cameras that can read license plates. What did they do next? They tried to reduce vehicle traffic. Remember this, that the number one way to reduce your carbon footprint is to prevent you from driving. Your car creates more of your carbon footprint than anything else you do unless you fly planes for a living. But for the average person, your car is your number one carbon footprint. So to reduce the, everyone's carbon footprint, the most logical thing is to reduce the number of people who own private vehicles. And the World Economic Forum has even said that they want to phase out private vehicle ownership because it's too costly and wasteful. So in the 15-minute city in your district, as soon as they divided you into a smaller space, the next thing they do is start removing car lanes and replacing them with bike or pedestrian lanes. They start putting in new developments, maximum amounts of parking instead of minimum amounts of parking. They start creating low traffic neighborhoods where cars are simply not allowed. 
they start taking roads and calling them ultra low emissions roads where only electric vehicles can ride. And the end game of this is to only have government vehicles and things like taxis or Ubers on the road. And you're going to be relegated to your bike, your scooter or your feet. And then it gets better. You're only allowed to leave your district on certain days, certain days. And if you want to leave beyond those days, you have to apply for a special travel pass. And if you do leave your district when not supposed to, the traffic cameras will take a picture of your license plate and charge you. That is the reality in Oxford, England right now. Paris is also doing very similar things. In fact, they're so worried about their carbon footprint that they have now deemed any flights, any domestic flights in France that could be done by train in two and a half hours or less illegal. So now they have permanently banned all domestic flights in Paris that could be done by train in two and a half hours or less. So what do you think? They're not going to just keep expanding this? And how much, and then why is the, why is the carbon footprint so important and why do you need to know about it? So now you know what a 15 minute city is and now you know how they physically plan to keep you in your own little district. But how are they mentally, financially, psychologically going to keep you in your district? Check this out. More and more, you're going to be hearing calls for you to start monitoring your so-called carbon footprint because you are now collectively responsible for everybody else. So you need to start being mindful and making choices that are better for the planet. So let's get, remember, before rights and freedoms, individual rights and freedoms were paramount to a successful society. Then they became selfish and dangerous under the guise of a pandemic, but only temporarily. Now, under the guise of climate change, your rights and freedoms are selfish and dangerous forever, and you're no longer giving them up for the health and safety of yourself and your family. You're giving them up for the health and safety of Mother Earth, the planet. So now humans are now the problem <laughs> that needs to be tracked, traced, and controlled. So they already want you to track your carbon footprint. How are they going to do that? Well, MasterCard's are already offering you yes. a card that will track and give you an, a carbon amount on every single purchase. And they're already doing it in grocery stores and even certain restaurants. If you go into a grocery store, you can go to the vegan section. You can see some packaged kale and it'll give you a rating of like 0.2 kilograms of carbon per serving, which means you can eat as much of it as you want. Now, to give you some perspective, how much carbon do they want you to be able to use? How much carbon does the actual person use right now? And let's give you some relative examples to show you where this is going. So it's number one, we in North America are the worst carbon polluters because we drive the most because we have the largest land mass, et cetera. So they estimate that the average American uses over 20 tons of carbon a year or 20,000 kilograms of carbon a year. According to the Paris Climate Accords that we've signed on to, US, Canada, and many other countries, if we don't reduce the average person's carbon footprint to two tons or 2,000 kilograms by 2030, we are all going to die. And our kids are, are going to inherit a scorched earth and we're going to be in some dystopian apocalyptic future. Now, what does two tons of carbon look like? Say I want to fly from Toronto to Amsterdam, Netherlands, and back. And I use Amsterdam because 
Toronto government has a partnership with the World Economic Forum, Air Canada, uh, KLM, which is the Dutch airlines, and the Canadian and Dutch government between Toronto and Amsterdam Airport to try to make travel as horrible as possible. That's why there's so many friggin' security lineups. That's why there's so much lost luggage because they spent $100 million to try to convince all the travelers to go on the trusted digital or identity program. But that's another story. Say we wanted to fly from Toronto to Amsterdam and back. If you go on Google Flights Expedia and you purchase a ticket right now, it'll show you how much your ticket costs. It'll show you the duration of your flight, any connections, et cetera. But now there's a new thing on there the carbon amount. There is a new currency in addition to the American dollar amount that you have to pay to fly. Now it's gonna show you how much carbon you bad person are using to fly to Amsterdam and back. How much exactly from Toronto? Roughly 500 kilograms or half a ton of carbon to fly to Amsterdam, which is about seven hours away and back. So, so in this a, is a once in a decade opportunity for people. That's basically what they're trying to tell you because in that 14 hours of me flying to Toronto, Amsterdam and back, I've used about 25% or one quarter of my entire yearly allowance for carbon. So are you going to be flying? No. Are you going to be driving? No. Are you going to be leaving your district? No. So now they want to give you a, what they're going to call a personal carbon allowance. And it's going to start a lot higher than the two, obviously. If they just try to tell everybody you're going to have two tons of carbon, there'd be a revolt and they'd probably all be beheaded. So they're going to try to convince you now to slowly start tracking your carbon. Then they're going to show you how you're using 20, 30, 40 tons of carbon a year and how horrible that is and how it needs to be reduced. Then they're going to convince you you need a personal carbon allowance. And now every single thing you do is tracked and controlled. When you order in a restaurant, it's going to have the name of the, the food, how much it costs and how much carbon. And now they have a reason to force you onto the digital identity so they can track, trace, control, and tax every single transaction you make. And in Canada, it gets even better because they've already agreed to make Toronto, Vancouver, Ottawa, Edmonton, 15-minute cities. In fact, Edmonton has already been divided into 15 districts. I actually had a debate a week and a half ago with an official Edmonton city planner. And they think, oh, Chris Sky is just some talking head, some guy with tattoos and muscles. But my name, Sky, comes from my company, Sky Homes Corporation. I have over 20 years of professional planning, development, design, and build experience. So if anybody understands the concept of these 15-minute cities and the implications on society for the stipulations in the it's me. So I interviewed this planner. I ripped them apart. They couldn't answer any of the questions. And that is one of the reasons why I wanted to run for mayor. Because in Toronto, as mayor, I can put a stop to the 15-minute city, the carbon allowance, the digital ID. In the Toronto area, like you said, in the GTA, that's almost 10 million people in Canada, a population of 37 million. And if I can set that example in the the crown jewel city of the World Economic Forum agenda, it will reverberate not just around Canada, but across the world. So I, uh, that, that, and that's what we're basically what, what we're doing. And, and we have to, you have to understand that Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum, it's on, you know, they own half of Trudeau's cabinet. Uh, they've got people at every level of government. And if you think that it isn't happening in Toronto, Look, they're already changing on the busiest routes 
They're putting in, you know, the diamond lanes. They're putting in bike lanes. When cars need to go through there, they're slowing down. They're making it more inconvenient. If you've been to uh, Toronto International Airport, it's horrible. Like, they are making it as unpleasant to travel as possible. It's actually worse than you think. They already have the first 15-minute city district plan in Toronto, and it's right off the DVP in uh, the area that has a lot of older buildings and where they have those car dealerships. And if you look at the renderings, you won't see two things. You won't see any cars, and you won't see any single-family dwellings. Because now everybody's going to be living in a 250. That's what they want you to live in, by the way. 250 square foot condo for a single person. I don't know if you've ever been to jail before, but a jail cell is around the same size. <laughs> so, and and they want you, their idea is they want you to live in your so-called district for the vast majority of your life. And in Canada, it gets even better. We got snow on the ground five months out of the year. France and England don't really have that in most of the European cities. Yeah, so it I makes want to a ride my bicycle sense. in January. Yeah, so imagine a 55-year-old mother of four having to take her bicycle or her scooter or walk to the grocery store in the snow, carry an entire – she has a full shopping cart of groceries that she now has to try to carry home. And what's she going to do? What's she going to do? Oh, that's right, because you're going to be eating less. You're probably not going to be buying as much food anyway, so it'll be easier for you to carry it. Well, it's no an absolute, it's an absolute shit show, and it's the, the whole idea is to absolutely destroy the standard of living for the average person. I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, when I was 16, 17, nothing I wanted more than a car. Why? Because a car represented freedom. You could freedom. go where you want, when you want. You could drive across the country if you want. You could drive across the world almost if you want. And so what do they want to do? They want to make sure the average person doesn't have access to that. They want you to be dependent on Uber to go from point A to point B or dependent on your own two feet. And that is scary. And everybody needs to take notice of this. And it's only going to get worse because if you allow the 15-minute city, if you allow the personal carbon allowance, then you allow the digital ID. Now they're going to have you in a position where they can force you to take a vaccine or you can't even access your bank account. They can force you to take 10 vaccines or you can't even access your bank account. Now they have you in a position where if they don't like what you say online, they can dox your so-called social credit score. With a digital ID in place, people like me won't even be able to access the internet. We won't be able to go on planes. We won't be able to go to our jobs if we speak out too much. They will have complete control over you. And the final nail in the coffin is the central bank digital currency. And this yeah. is not a pipe dream. 13 countries in the world already have them and mm -hmm. over a hundred and 110 countries in the world are currently working on it. 110 countries of the world that represent over 95% of the world's gross domestic product are currently in the production of central bank digital currency. And the governments want this because it is complete and utter control. Yeah. Not only can they control if you spend your money or what you can spend it on, they can even which like China is doing now, make your digital currency expire. So imagine if you don't spend your money, the government takes it back from you. It doesn't matter how successful, how smart, how hardworking, you will never be able to get ahead. You will never be able to accumulate wealth or status. You will never be able to improve your living situation and you will never be able to pass on anything to the future generation. It is a 100% 
technocratic control slave grid where the government has completely flipped the script and they now become the rulers and you become the completely dependent on them to survive slaves. This is the world they are building up around us as we speak. Not yeah, and they the plan future. on having all of this done by 2030. Yes, like, they want it all in place by 2030. And the best part is when you go over your so-called personal carbon allowance, guess what they're going to do? They're going to charge you per ton. Trudeau already told us it's going to be $170 per ton by 2030. So forget all the other inflation and cost of living increases between now and that. Just picture 2030, the average person going 20 tons of carbon over their limit, getting charged $170. That's almost four grand extra in taxes a year per person. For a family of four who probably has a uh, an income of 60 to 70,000, that's almost $20,000 a year just in extra carbon taxes simply to have the exact same standard of living that they had five years ago. And, and it's important for the audience to know that this stuff, like they might want to, they want to have it accomplished by 2030. That's why they're doing it now. So if you want to be restricted to your neighborhood in a year from now, uh, just sit back and do nothing. And one of the things that when I said this could really reach the world, you know, I remember years ago uh, flying to Vegas and getting into a, a cab and, you know, the cab driver asked where I'm from. And I said, Toronto. And he goes, oh, you got that crackhead mayor, but it yeah. had gone international. And Doug Ford was a pretty good mayor for what it's worth. He was the best mayor of Toronto had since I've been alive. Ask anybody. But the thing is, it made it to the international stage. And getting Chris onto the debate stage, getting him in there, the media will not be able to ignore him. They might try at first, but they won't be able to. This is the most important thing. And uh, right before we went on here, Chris, you said something that was really, really good to hear. And I, I'm just going to put it to you. Uh, do you think you can win? <laughs> the better question that people need to ask, name one person who can beat me. Name one. Name I one. don't even know who else is running. That's my point. That's my point. They have nobody. If I ran against John Tory incumbent who had already been elected three times, I would have had no chance. That's why I never even considered running for mayor. It never even crossed my mind. But when John Tory got kicked out, was forced to resign, and he won the election with almost 70% of the vote, and we had only 24% of the eligible voters go and vote. That was the most dismal turnout in any mayoral race in recent history. Uh, it shows that there's a real opportunity for someone to move in there and actually make change. And guess what? I am the most qualified and I can explain how and why in about two minutes. Besides the fact that I already explained I have over 20 years in professional planning and development, that was me working in the private industry, but I had to work with the government. I had to work through their bureaucracy. And what do we know about how, working with government? Government will take something that costs $10 and turn it into causing $100. If it took a week to do it, it will take them three months to do it. I didn't have that luxury working in the private sector. I had the budgetary constraints. I had the deadlines, but I still had to work with the government and get it done. So I have a very unique ability to be able to work in the government efficiently. Imagine that. Nobody else can say that who's running anywhere.
Number two, look at me. Who's going to fight harder for the interests of Canadians? Absolutely nobody. Even the people on the far left that are quadruple jab, that wore three masks, that are still loving government tyranny. When it comes down to it, they love the idea of having me fight for them rather than be in front of them and against them. They love the idea of unleashing me into the political spectrum and allowing me to proliferate truth. So I have a wonderful base from left to right, young to old, every ethnicity. I already have a massive following on social media all around the world. None of the others can say that. I have so many endorsements. I have shows like this, multiple shows every day talking about it. And I am more dedicated than anybody else. My wife will attest that I sleep around three hours a day. The rest of the day, what am I doing? I'm answering my phone. Why? Because my phone number is public. You can Google Chris Sky's cell number and it'll pop up. It is 416-400-9994 because I made myself personally accountable and personally reachable to the people. You will not get a voicemail. You will not get an assistant. You will not get an office. You get me. Nobody will do any of these things. And I do them all. (laughs) Thank you. And I've been doing it for the last three years unofficially for the people. So imagine what I can do for the people when I'm given an international platform that legitimizes and solidifies my message. And I'm given the powers of the mayor to protect the people from the agenda they are trying to impose upon us against our will, against our best interests, and against the futures of our families. So one of the things that's going to come out, and obviously we know what you're against, and and my entire audience is behind you on those things. But in running for an office, you know, people care about their kitchen table issues. So what are some of the things that you were for And what are some of the improvements that you can bring to Toronto? Well, number one, the first thing that needs to happen is things like mandates, restrictions need to be removed. There's still so many people, especially in the healthcare sector, that haven't been rehired to their jobs, haven't been given back pay, have still been treated like they're garbage. Wasn't it funny that the nurses and the frontline workers were all heroes? They were the best people in the world until they decided not to go along with an experimental untested injection. And then all of a sudden they were just as bad as everyone else and discarded as garbage. Why don't we look after all the people that the government discards as garbage? What about our our veterans? What about our veterans are, are for the most part homeless? We have the largest and fastest growing homeless population in Toronto of anywhere in the developed world. Well, our friggin' politicians ride around in private jets and live this decadent lifestyle and pretend that we live in these ivory towers. Meanwhile, our streets are not that safe. You can't even go on the TTC without someone trying to slash your face or push you on the friggin' tracks to the point where we have to spend $30 million on additional security for it. People aren't safe because people aren't happy. People aren't happy because the standard of living has dwindled year after year in Toronto while the cost of living keeps rising and all they get is lip service and excuses for how they should be happy that they get to live in Toronto. Toronto is also- Let's talk about safety then, Chris, because you brought it up and I haven't been on the TTC in a long time. Uh, However, uh, you, you know, if it's unsafe, there's a problem because the enforcement- 
uh, the police, they got a bad reputation in Toronto throughout the COVID. Uh, I remember seeing, because I was down at the Toronto uh, Queen's Park ones quite often, and I, you know, seeing people getting thrown to the ground, old lady just for having a sign and stuff like that. So uh, you need these people to work for you and not against you. How can you reconcile that? Well, number one, first of all, I have to say, there are a lot of bad apples in the police department that were accentuated during COVID because it already uh, it already accentuated people's uh, morbidly psychotic tendencies, which a lot of police officers seem to have. But there are also a lot of fantastic officers in the department, and we needed them on our side. And that's why I even did the Back the Blue event in London, Ontario, where we had about thirteen to fifteen thousand people come because they got the mandates imposed on them. And London, Ontario was the first place in all of Canada where they removed the mandates on their officers and allowed them to work. So I believe if we can work with the officers and we can get rid of all the mandates and restrictions, we can weed out those bad apples and we can reinvigorate uh, the community with the police officers. So that's how it should be. The police officers should be one with the community. They should be loved by the community because the community yeah. sees them as servants of the community and not oppressors. COVID made them oppressors. COVID literally made the cops ticket, fine, or arrest people because they tried to bring their kids to a park or they tried to go and, and speak in the street. It was absolutely disgusting, and there's no excuse for that. And they can't just say they were following orders because that's what the Nazis said. So as uh, I would make sure that I would make sure I would make sure to remove any of the policies that fostered that type of environment. And I would even try to find the worst offenders. I would go through the departments and see which cops gave out the most COVID fines, which cops had the most COVID interactions. Those are the police I no longer want on the force because they weren't out there serving the community. They were out there oppressing the community. And that's not what we need. We need officers. And I met so many of them that love their community, want to protect their community and want to serve their community. And if we can foster that type of relationship again with the community, not only will we have a safer Toronto, we have a much happier Toronto. And, and in the in the second year of the pandemic, I did notice a change in the police force quite a bit. A lot of guys were saying, hey, this has gone too far. And I think most of them are good guys, but they really need a top-down management sort of, uh, you know. And they uh, got to stop taking orders from programming. <laughs> but yes, the police is one of the easy fixes. We also got to address the fact that Toronto has become the dumping ground for illegal immigration. Immigration could be a beautiful asset for Toronto. If you want to go and take your family to Mexico, for instance, right now, as I've been getting helping people get residencies there, so I know the stipulations, uh, you have to show Mexico that you make $4,600 a month or you have at least $77,000 in the bank. And that's so you can bring your, yourself and your spouse, one or two people. In Canada, if you can show the government that you got ten grand. You can bring your family of seven. They'll put you up in a house. They'll take your fake driver's license from Kazakhstan or, or Syria, and they'll get you an international driver's license so you can now legally drive in Canada, which is why in Brampton you, said, you see people driving through each other's cars and houses on a regular basis because they've never actually driven before. But we they're call giving it Bramladesh. Yes, because these people are coming from countries with fake licenses. They've never driven before. And then if you have a license from anywhere, I have a Mexican license. So I can legally get a, an international driver's license, which allows me to rent a car in Canada, buy a car in Canada, insure a car in Canada. So they're using these loopholes to bring in third worlders. And then the majority of them get dumped in Toronto because they want it to vote liberal. That's why they bring them here. They bring them here on our money 
They don't bring anything into the country. Immigrants should be bringing either money or skills to make our country America a better needs. place. We should not yeah. be a dumping ground for people that are fleeing their place because they don't like it. Refugees are great, but we don't need millions of refugees. We need millions of immigrants that could actually make Canada a better place. And we're waiting in what, 600,000 a year? And almost 70% of them are ending up in Toronto. Like, yeah, it's insane. And, and, and they're not refugees. They're just coming on, in under that status. Exactly. It's, exactly. It's the destruction of the country. It's it's invasion from within. It's it's on purpose. And and by the way, we always blame the World Economic Forum. But look at the Council of Foreign Relations, particularly for you Americans. That's what's driving it. Well, and it, people need to look up this, too. It's called the C40 Agenda. And C40 represents 40 cities that have signed on to the World Economic Forum agenda of uh, the 15-minute the cities, the digital IDs, et cetera. And the C40s is run by what they call the Council of Mayors. And guess who the president of the Council of Mayors, an international consortium was? I have to look this up. Mr. John Tory. Ah, what a surprise. And his number one replacement, by the way, and I shouldn't even say his name because I'm going to be giving him a uh, giving him free press here, but he came second in the last election to John Thor. His name is Gil Peñalosa. And he started the initiative, which he calls Cities for Everyone. And Cities for Everyone is in rainbow writing, by the way, to show how inclusive and equitable and how much of an ally he is. And then all over his Twitter, he's talking about 15-minute cities modeled after Paris. He's talking about our carbon footprints. He's talking about the wonders of digital ID. And the, oh, I forgot to mention one thing. When I traveled around the world, they were implementing the exact same agenda in every country, but they're also focusing on that country's weakness in order for their agenda to be more successful. And what do I mean by that? I can explain really quick. In England, they're so far ahead with the Great Reset and this whole digital identity agenda that I couldn't even rent a scooter. You know the Lime scooters or the little scooters that the kids go and they scan, like a six-year-old kid could scan like five of them and then him and all his little friends could go around? In England, you need to scan the front and back of your driver's license, the front and back of your credit card, take a 10-second video selfie to prove it's you, and then upload all that data into what they call the worldwide digital identity apparatus. And then it was almost a 20-minute process. My friend tried to do it just to see. And then after all that, and after it took all his information, it said his identity couldn't be verified, so we couldn't even rent the scooter. That was it. got all his information. Yep, got all his info, but he still wasn't allowed to rent the scooter. Then when I went to Ireland, Ireland, they're trying to pull the same things. But now in Ireland, they're trying to destroy the national identity. Why? Because Ireland only had 5 million people to begin with. They're making situ living situations for the average Irish citizen so bad, over 750,000 Irish citizens now live abroad. And if you pull uh, Irish students age 19 to 25, 70% of them say they're going to seek opportunities in other countries because they don't see opportunities in Ireland. But if you call yourself a Ukrainian refugee, you can be from any country in the world and you can come to Ireland. And even though they have a massive housing crisis for a city of Dublin, 500,000 people, there was 180 rentals available, 180 for 500,000 people. So they have such a massive housing crisis that they know they could resolve if they just spent a few billion dollars on infrastructure. But rather than do that, they brought in so many Ukrainian refugees with their housing budget and putting them up in hotels and everything else to the point where now one out of every two to three people living in Ireland is a refugee. 
how are you supposed to fund a country that already has a low GDP when a couple percentage of your population is being paid for by everyone else? The only homeless people you see in Ireland are Irish people. Anybody of a different ethnicity is more taken care of by the government. And this is not by accident, it's by design. Just and what like they in Canada. Yes, and in Canada, they're doing similar things. They're trying to destroy it by bringing in all these people. But they also know that Canadians have another weakness. We all love to live in nice big houses. The average Canadian overextends themselves on their mortgage. And that puts mm -hmm. them in a very vulnerable position to governments that can control interest rates. And what have we seen over the last few a few months? Interest rates have risen multiple times. I saw one person's mortgage that I know go from $12,000 a month to over $30,000 a month. That's an extreme case. But the average person will see their mortgage go from two $2,500 to three thirty five, dollars even $4,000 a month. How many Canadians at that point are going to be in a position where they're not only underwater on their house, so it doesn't even make sense to pay that mortgage off, but they physically can't pay it. Answer, a lot. So what is the government gonna do? They're gonna come to you with a wonderful new homeowner savings program. Basically universal basic income, but under the guise of saving your home. And the average, they believe the average Canadian who loves their standard of living will sign up to a digital ID, give their iris, give their fingerprint, give their facial recognition, et cetera, for the opportunity to not have to downsize or not have to sell their home. That you own nothing and you'll be happy, right? That's right. And that's basically a phase out of not just the single family dwelling of the average person. It's a phase out of home ownership in general. They're already touting multiple homeowners to buy houses together, rent to own programs. These are all transitions into you not owning anything. In the 60s and 70s, in the early, in the mid 60s, when my father was growing up, the average man made about $10,000 a year. The average house costs about $30,000 a year. So a man working and his wife staying at home, you know, the American dream, they could buy a house, buy two cars, save enough money to put their kids through college and help their kids out to get on their own two feet. Because the average house costs basically only three times the salary that a man made. Fast forward to today, through the wonders of inflation and oh, yeah. stealing your purchasing power secretly, uh, now the average man makes about 30 grand a year. The average house costs about five to 600,000 a year. So instead of three years of salary, you got 17 to 20 years of salary, which is why now people cannot even afford a down payment on a mortgage, which is a loan, when before they could simply just buy the house outright. Before you could have own two cars. Now you're lucky if you can lease a car. And where do you think this is going? It's going to the 15 minute city where you live in a tiny little box, you don't have a car, and you have to literally watch what you eat because you don't want to go over your monthly carbon allowance because they're going to charge you $170 per ton. And, you know, I'm so glad you brought up this mortgage thing because you have to understand, like in Toronto, where you want to be mayor, the average, you know, the average home cost across Canada might be about 500000 or even maybe a little bit less. But in Toronto, sure. the average home is $1.4 million. So... When we have and when you say home, you're not talking about a single family dwelling. Let's be clear for people that aren't from Toronto. A $1.4 million home in Toronto is like a 1,300 square foot townhouse that's 60 years old that looks like you wouldn't even want to live there. You can buy a teardown in downtown Toronto for over a million dollars because you're just getting the lot. And we're talking about a 30 foot wide lot here, yeah. not some big mansion lot. 
Just so anyone under 30 really doesn't have any aspiration to own a home these days. They, they just see it as being impossible. So, you know, that generation has already written it off and many of them aren't even going to get cars because they got used to this Uber thing. So if this is really scary that, you know, a lot of the population has literally been programmed through some circumstance and certainly through media and through conveniences to accept all of these changes. So we need a guy like Chris Guy to get the bully pulpit and get this word out. That's and that's exactly what we've been doing. And I and the only reason I wanted to run for mayor is because I believe I can do that on a grand scale. Worst case scenario, I lose, they arrest me, uh, I end up in jail or something. But guess what? I'll still be I'll still be international. My message will still get out there to billions of people. My 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 uh my videos already have hundreds and hundreds of millions of views. I've seen them translated to 14 or 15 different languages. So I know my message gets out there. But my message as a candidate for mayor is that much more powerful, it's that much more broad, and it'll be taken that much more seriously. And that's why I'm doing this. It was a it was a thing of circumstance. You listen to what happened and you tell me if I shouldn't have ran. I never even considered it. I didn't even know anything was going on. I had to go to court, court, because I'm on charges right now for assault with deadly weapon on police officers and threatening to shoot all the premiers in Canada. Of course, they're fake charges. Of course, I'm going to beat them, but they've held them over my head for the, the longest that they could. They, they postponed the trial for the full 18 months. They gave me three days for trial in January. I did all three days. Then they told me I needed a fourth day. So they brought me back to Toronto February 15th for trial when the worldwide rally in Toronto happened to be the 18th. So they brought me back and put me in a position to headline the worldwide rally in Toronto, which we turned into a massive event we called Reunite Ontario. So that was the government's first mistake. Number two, I didn't even know John Tory had resigned. My phone was blowing up and people are saying, oh my God, are you running for mayor? And I said, what are you talking about? And my wife said, oh, John Tory just had to resign. I go, so what does that have to do with me? They said, well, you're trending Chris Sky for mayor on Google and Twitter. So before I even knew what was going on, the internet was already asking for me to be mayor. And, so, and that was two days before I was set to fly to Toronto to be there. And then when I was flying to Toronto, I had a meeting with a family because about two weeks ago, I get phone calls from people all the time because my number's public and people know I have vast knowledge base across many topics. I'm actually a worldwide uh, nutritionist. I was on one of the best bodybuilding teams in the world. So I have a lot vast knowledge in a lot of topics. So a father called me and he was in tears because his little girl who was perfectly normal before COVID, during COVID, like many people, suffered a mental health breakdown, and now she had an eating disorder. And she was in and out of the hospital. Her mom even had to quit her job. She wasn't even in school for nine months. And they were at the end of the rope. No doctors could help her. No one could help her. So he's like, can you help my daughter? And he's like, she's a fan of yours. She'll, she'll listen to what you say. So he put her on the phone. And I spent about 10 minutes talking to her, trying to cheer her up, giving, giving them a diet to take her, even got her to take blood work so I could analyze it for her because I could even do that. I know I'm weird. Uh, yeah. So long story short, I found out her 15th birthday was February 16th, the day after my trial, right when I was going to be in Toronto, two days before the worldwide rally. So I told the family that my wife and I were going to come and bring her a gift for her birthday. And they said, oh, that's, that's really nice of you. 
when we landed in Toronto, uh, I called the father and he had heard about the mayor thing and he was all excited. And I said, yeah, what time would you like us to come over? He's like, well, that's, there's going to be a problem. He's like, if you still want to come, you're going to have to meet us in the hospital. She got readmitted. So I said, obviously, yeah, we're going to come. Sorry. I got to think about this girl. So we went to the hospital. We brought her a gift. And you see this perfect little angel destroyed by government policy. 59 pounds. Bedridden. 59 pounds. Five foot one, 59 pounds. Unable to eat solid foods. Confined to her bed. So we brought her a, a whole bunch of gifts, all this different stuff from Sephora that she loves, some of my merchandise, et cetera. And we spent a few hours just talking with her and her family. And she, I asked her, I said, well, be honest, what was your favorite gift? And she looked at me and she said, you coming here was the best gift I could have ever got. And then she said, are you really going to run for mayor? <laughs> <laughs> and there's videos of me all over the world stating, that I would do anything in my power to protect the children from the agenda that they're doing. And when she looked me in the eyes and asked me that, I said, yes. And I was like, there's no way I cannot run now. And I would never be able to look a child in the eyes again. And 10 years from now, looking at any kid enslaved, I would know that it's probably my fault. <laughs> so that was the reason that I decided to run for mayor. John Tory resigned officially on the 17th. On the 18th, I was at the worldwide rally, and in front of thousands of people, I announced that I was going to be running. And I believe I'm going to have more support than any mayoral candidate in recent or even not so recent history. Sorry, I got no, no, don't be sorry, man. That that's that's very it's real, and that's that's what I love about you. Listen, for for Chris to be successful, he's going to need your help. Uh, he's got an email address up. A lot of my audience is uh, is audio only, so it's Chris Sky for change. So that's C R C H R I S S K Y for change at Gmail. No, it's not Gmail. It's mail. It's at mail.com. Everybody oh, makes that mistake. Yeah, I've had so many people try to message me, and they say it doesn't work because they automatically assume it's Gmail, but no, it's not Gmail. <laughs> It's my, Chris, my audience knows I'm not wearing my glasses. <laughs> Chris Sky for change, because that's what we need. We need change. Chris Sky for change at mail.com. We set it up. It's it's not a campaign fundraiser, because I've obviously haven't launched my campaign yet, and it would be illegal to have a campaign fundraiser uh, accepting donations from anybody who wasn't from the Toronto area. But because it's in order to allow me to be in a position where I could dedicate all my time and energy to a campaign. It's perfectly legal for people to support what we're doing now, which is our research, which is our touring and everything else we're doing. So any Canadian can send an e-transfer to that email, chrisskyforchange at mail.com. And for international people watching, if they want to help out or support, they just email that email and uh, they can be provided wire transfer information or crypto information or where they could send a check if they really want to support our run here. And we're also, uh, hopefully by the end of the day, actually, I have a wonderful woman who contacted me out of the blue because I was trying to uh, create a nomination event because on March 29th, they're going to reconvene in Toronto for the first council meeting. And at that council meeting, they're going to announce the election date and it should be within 45 to 60 days of that day. So we should be seeing an election unless they pull some screwery to try to delay it between May and June. Uh, in 2023 
And they're also going to announce on March 29th the dates that people like me will be eligible to put our hats in for the mayor. Uh, so I'm going to be back in Toronto before that happens. And on April 1st, we're going to be hosting a very special, very upscale dinner at one of the top venues with one of the top chefs in Toronto. It's supposed to get booked today, so I don't want to give anything away. But we will be talking about it. It will be promoted everywhere. And people are going to, there's going to be 100 tickets available, normal and VIP tickets. And we're going to be using that as a basically a fundraising event and a nomination event where I'll be able to get the signatures required for me to actually right. apply to be mayor. Thank you, everybody. So, listen, even you guys in the States and a lot of my audiences there, uh, contact them if you're able. Give them support. And to the people in Canada, uh, you small business owners, and even if you're not a small business owner, you know one. Oh, before you go, before I forget, sorry, I have to cut you off there because the very first thing I did in the pandemic, and I'm reaching out to all the small business owners, I know that the small business owners are the backbone of not just Canada, but the U.S. They represent 77% of all the jobs in Canada. We had over 1.1 million small business owners. They are the entrepreneurs that we need to support. And there were some business owners that were in business for 30, 40 years successfully. And then they went out of business because of government policy, not because of anything they did. For those business owners, for people who were shut down because of the pandemic, who had previously successful businesses as mayor, and I don't care if I have to cut government salaries to get the budget for this, I'd be giving out interest-free loans to small businesses to restart a new business because we need, that's the only real way the economy is going to recover. You can't recover an economy on a fake GDP of, a, of, a, no. of all public spending. It's got to be real people doing real things, generating real GDP for the economy. So that was one of the main things I would do is to re-encourage and reinvigorate the small business industry through interest-free government loans because everybody deserves a second chance after what they were put through. And small business really needs to get behind you. So go talk to your friends who own small businesses. Get them interested in this campaign. Share this video with the hashtag Chris Guy for Mayor. Share it. Get the information out. Just the, the amount of knowledge that Chris has given you in this video alone should be enough to get your vote, but not only that, to get your help. Remember, this can hit an international stage. I would not bet against Chris Sky. I'm just telling you, I would not bet against him. I've been following you for a while, Chris. This is the first time we've met, uh, but I have followed you for a long, well, ever since your very first video at Pearson Airport. Uh, that, that wasn't was my first video. That was definitely not. That was fe that was February 2021. That was the day I was coming back from Turkey, Istanbul. Yes, that's the, the first day. one I saw. Yes, and it was the day that they imposed the illegal and completely unconstitutional uh, hotel quarantines on Canadians. And I made the video showing Canadians that they did not have to submit to quarantine testing or wearing a mask. And within six weeks, that was actually removed from society. So that video had a huge effect. But my first video that went viral was from September 2020 when I predicted the pandemic right after coming back from Ireland and warning them what was going to happen. And I told everybody that they're going to have a perpetual lockdown where they're only going to let you off of lockdown for a few months of the year. They're going to tell you that the vaccine didn't work, so they're going to have to take more and more vaccines. They're going to tell you that you're going to have to keep wearing the mask. And that's the video that's gotten like hundreds and billions of views all around the world. Well, and you have been right all the way through this. I, I can't and I'm going to be right, I'm right now, too, so people better start listening. Yeah, that's right. Share this video. 
Chris Sky for Mayor. Go to Chris Sky for Change at mail.com. Reach out, folks. Get involved, even if you're not in the Toronto area. But if you're in the Toronto area, I hope you work your ass off for him. Uh, I told Chris the other day, uh, with no, obviously, there's nothing in it for me, but I'm going to cover this campaign and I'm going to be putting in a lot of extra effort, a lot of extra hours. I want to help support him because of the change that this can do. And it's not just because I live just outside of Toronto. It's really because this is a global thing. Uh, to my listeners in Australia, you're under the same Commonwealth system and you're in the, you're, well, you've had it, you know, about the same as we have, maybe even worse in some areas. But this stuff is real. And what Chris Sky is doing can actually affect where you live as well. That's right. And I pledge you this. I'm not just trying to save Toronto. I'm doing this because to me, Toronto is like the jugular of the World Economic Forum agenda. And if I can cut off their jugular, I can't just save Toronto. I can't just save Canada. I can save everywhere around the world. I'm not leaving anybody out and I'm not stopping until every single person gets their freedom back and governments are held accountable all over the world. That's phase three of United Noncompliance, holding them accountable and we're coming for them. Amen. And amen. Uh, a final word before we let you go, Chris. Do not let them make you feel negative. That's this whole thing. They want you to feel negative because when you're negative, even if you're awake, they've nullified your power. The very first step to get people awake is to get them to understand that everything that's going on, whether it's from the pandemic or whether it's from the climate change agenda, is, has nothing to do with your health and safety and everything to do with government control. Once people understand that, boom, they're awake and they can't go back to sleep. But the government also knows that awake people can be nullified. And that's why they use negativity in their media, in their message. And they bombard you with all these different agendas at once because they want you to feel helpless. They want you to feel isolated. They want you to feel overwhelmed because then not only will you not fight back, you won't connect with others who want to fight back. A negative and a positive simply cannot connect. But when you're and you won't even hear the message. When I say things like Canadian men need to step it up, those in the negative mindset hear that and say, wow, Chris Skye's an asshole. He's coming after me. I hate that guy. The ones in the positive are like, wow, Chris Sky is standing up for me. I'm not alone in this. And he's right. I can do more. It's the mindset. As yeah. soon as you're in that positive mindset, you're not only awake, you've activated your individual power. And now you can connect with other like-minded individuals who have activated their power. And when you, we achieve something called united non-compliance. That is the global solution to this problem. It is, it is non-reactionary, always in self-defense, and it is always in defense. And that is why it can destroy fear, confusion, anger, and hopelessness. Love truly does conquer all. And that's why I'm always smiling. So I can keep this message and I can keep this movement not just alive, but growing and thriving because inevitably we win, ladies and gentlemen. The only question is how much do you want your friends, family, and children to suffer? I don't want them to suffer at all. And, you know, I'll just give a final note, Chris. Uh, you know, I'm an American living in Canada for a few decades now. And 
you know, I've but had my eyes on the United States mostly because if the United States falls, quite honestly, I think the world goes in many ways. And I didn't have a lot of hope for Canada until I saw the trucker protest. And that was real. And it was right across the country. I think Canada has the opportunity to lead again. And it's not Chris Sky by himself. It's going to be people like me, people like you getting behind him. And we're going to organize a lot in Toronto. I'm, I'm actually seriously going to put a lot of effort into this. And I'm not asking for anything, obviously. It's just the right thing to do. Uh, so I'm going to encourage you to do that. And for you prayer warriors, pray for Chris Sky. Pray for God's favor on his life. That's Archangel Michael right there, guys. And he's a warrior. <laughs> he's, the he's actually supposed to be the protector of mankind, if you really want to know. And I'd like to add, my wife is an American citizen from Texas. Nine ah, okay. <laughs> right on, right on, right on. Hey, thanks, well, Chris. I feel like the, the U.S. Time. and I agree. I agree with you wholeheartedly. If the U.S. falls, the world falls. But Canada can still be the one that lights the way for them. Because right now, the U.S., they're not doing everything they could. They got, oh, the, money, they got the power. They got the numbers. They're still worrying about Biden. They're still having all these falsified elections. They're still having these mandates. I can't even come to the U.S. My and I, I'm married to a U.S. citizen, and I cannot go to the U.S. because I am unvaccinated. And My wife and I are in the same spot. Isn't that crazy? It's I got a way. I got a way around it. I'll tell you off air. Awesome. Well, I have an exemption too, so I probably couldn't make it if I really tried. It's just, is it really worth the hassle to get turned? Well, around? You do, yeah, you don't want when you get turned around that stays on you too, right? So. Exactly, and that's exactly what I don't want. You got it, man. It's, we're yeah, always on the it, same. But page. here's the thing: it's all power to the people, and we have the numbers. They're actually really scared of us, and when. You see what Chris can do here in Toronto, and what, what not what he can do, what he's going to do in rallying numbers and rallying people. It's going to be undeniable. I'm going to be covering it. We're going to have a whole bunch of people covering it. The mainstream will not be able to avoid this, people, uh, but we need to get together, and you need to put into this. You need to put in something. If, you, if you're just sitting back on the couch and saying someone is going to save me, guess what? It's your grandkids that are going to suffer. It's your and if kids. People wanna, and if people want to know, you know how much skin I have in the game? You know how many times I've been arrested in the last 26 months? 25 times. I'm facing over 60 charges. I beat 38 charges in Ontario alone so far. So am I all in? I say so. Yeah, and they've all been fake charges. I've been following them literally. Like they, they, and they completely entrap you and pull you out of cars, and you know, it's even because through, they even threw my wife in prison without charges because they had literally done everything else to try to break me and try to hurt me. So when they had thrown me in prison, even after I had received bail, I had bail papers paid and everything. They crumpled them up, threw them at me, threw me in the black of a back van, took me to a prison then fully isolated me because I'm not jabbed. I won't wear a mask, even in prison, and I won't take a test. So they put me in solitary confinement for 23 hours and 45 minutes a day. And right before they came to turn the lights off for me, they said, oh, by the way, we got your wife in prison too. Sweet dreams. Boom. That's all I knew. I didn't know what she was in for. I didn't know how long she was in. I couldn't contact her. It took me two days to find out what had happened to her. And you were in solitary confinement. That is mental torture. 
They do that every time. I'm in solitary every time I'm arrested because they use the excuse that I'm a COVID risk because I won't wear a mask, I won't take the jab, and I won't take the tests. Ladies and gentlemen, that's about as all in as you can get. Uh, this is a guy who stands up and he's still smiling through all of this. <laughs> you are you are you are an amazing man, Chris. I will. I will say that. So are um, you, Jeff? I've, met, I've got a very good, this is my first time everybody actually talking to Jeff and even seeing Jeff and the energy I'm getting from him is not just genuine. It's not just powerful, but it's one of the most positive I've felt from anybody in a really long time. You're a good man. Uh, thank you, Chris. Hey, everybody, Chris Sky, we're going to keep on top of it. In the meantime, remember, love your God, love your family, love your neighbor as yourself and make a difference in your community by supporting Chris Sky. God bless you guys.